AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So, Matt, you've got a story for this this week having to do with SAC TCP. Yes. So, SAC is Selective Acknowledgement. It's part of the TCP stack. Um, and it turns out there's a set of vulnerabilities affecting different versions of the, uh, the Linux kernel. Anything that obviously deals with kernel-level bugs is something to take very serious. So Selective Acknowledgement allows in TCP the receiver of packets to acknowledge, like, I've, I got packets 1 through 3 and 4 and 7, and please only send me the ones that I've missed. Right. It seems like it's a pretty good feature, but typically it's not enabled. Uh, which is also one of the saving graces that this bug is going to be affecting a smaller set of devices because this isn't a, a feature you typically enable. But there are at least four different CVEs that have been found by a group at Netflix, and the bug actually affects at least one of them, the most critical one that they're calling SAC Panic, affects the Linux kernel going back to, to version 2.6.29, uh, which came out in 2009. So there's probably, well, there's about a decade's worth of devices yep. running Linux that are potentially affected by this, but again, that population should be small because it's an it's a optional feature that's disabled by default. So Red Hat has a patch, uh, Suzy has a, a patch. Some of these are full patches or temporary patches, but they are, you know, communicating about it, pushing out the patches that they've got. AWS has some plans to fix some features and has fixed other features. And at this point, there's a whole bunch of vendors who just haven't said anything. Hmm. So the big question remains, as of today when we're taping, this Tuesday, like, who is actually vulnerable to this? And right, and now, so this, this is, you said it's not typically enabled by default. Correct. And from what I understand, it's not enabled by default um, because it does actually um, produce some bit of overhead. Yes. So okay. then instead of saying, I didn't get everything, give me this whole range again, you've got to keep the state of what package right. I've seen, which yeah. is you know, a little bit of overhead. Okay. And on busier systems, obviously more overhead. Yeah. Um, that SAC panic bug, the name suggests, um, this is a kernel panic bug. So if you manage to send the right packets to your target, you can crash the machine, which is, you know, it's a problem. Yeah, so, and then you, the, you said that there's patches available, so I'm assuming these patches um, would require reboots on the... Um, you know, that's a very good question. I think that's the case with it whenever you, you replace the running kernel uh, on a Linux right. system. I, yeah. think, I think you do have to reboot the box. Yeah, uh, it's just, it's one of those things when you think about it, it's, it's one of the more serious bugs that are out there. And as soon as, you, as soon as you have one of those more serious bugs that requires a reboot for the patch, that's where I think you have a little bit of, little more pain points in terms right. of Because people, production servers exactly. will say, I can't possibly bring it down, exactly. or they don't have a plan for a disaster recovery yep. in case of something. Yeah. I get that, yeah. yeah. So. Well, we'll see where it goes. You know, it certainly was a sort of a busy week in terms of interesting bugs. Uh, this is just one more thing to throw on the pile, I guess. Yeah. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, so, so you mentioned AWS, and if you actually drill into their security bulletin and kind of read through all the affected services, you know, they're, they're patching their images that are affected, but they also call out, you know, some of their platform as a service or software as a service. In some cases, it requires some action on the user's part. In other cases, it's, you know, they automatically get the updated version. So you know, if you're a public cloud user, specifically AWS, 
They're able to go out and see what services you have enabled, and it requires any action for you to take updates to make sure you're, you're protected against this. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking that it, I should clarify that when I say the bug doesn't affect machines where it's disabled by default, there's still a possibility that some administrator will make a configuration change at some point and enable it, which is why you are still got to patch all these boxes. I would say that even if you're not using a feature at the moment, if there is a security patch for it and the code exists on your box, you should probably patch it. I realize you may want to rank it lower if you have to triage what bugs you have to patch in order, um, but eventually you should get around to patching it. Hey Mike, I heard there was a pretty serious flaw affecting XM email servers. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, so attackers uh, are exploiting, like you said, a pretty critical flaw uh, in the popular Linux XM mail transport agents, MTA, uh, allowing for remote command execution. So XM, it's like an SMTP mail relay. It's pretty popular. It runs on uh, some say up to 50, high 50s, high 57% of the internet mail servers. And it's a default MTA on some of the Linux systems. So. Uh, per Shodan, like a recent Shodan scan, um, it could affect up to 3.5 million uh, vulnerable servers that are currently exposed to this. So the bug itself, they tracked it down to um, improper validation and some of the recipient addresses in one of the functions. Uh, pretty serious um, are the CVSS V3 scale. They gave it a 9.8 on 10. Uh, it affects versions 4.87 through 4.98. I think the latest version, 4.92, is, is unaffected. So it's a big bug. Uh, and it is a remote code execution bug, which is one of the most critical types you could possibly have. Uh, they do have patches out. Uh, they're porting that to all versions back to 4.87 if you're using an older version. You know, so just make sure you're you know, keeping, uh, getting that patch and making sure you're up to date with the most recent version because it's a, a pretty, pretty serious issue. Wow. So, I mean, it, it sounds like it's something you could just put in the plain old, like, you address the the email to somebody, and you just drop the exploit in there, and it's it's remote code execution. Yeah, it seemed like it's a pretty you know pretty simple to to exploit. Um, and again, so so much that they can you can actually you know they actually have a worm that's that's exploiting this and finding new systems. Wow, from what I understand, and I think I've got the right bug here. Um, it's the actual mail address that you're actually putting. A, you can actually put a command that eventually the server will run. But from what I understand, the server, it'll take seven days before, before it actually activates the, so there's some sort of timeout that happens where it's validating whether or not it's a, it's a valid um, mail recipient. And then after seven days, I think it does this timeout and then runs the actual command. That's right. interesting. But that, that means like I, I could hand type the exploit code that I need here. Is that, is that roughly correct, or is it something you'd have to craft with a little more difficult to do? Right, so the one, the, the example that I saw, and I don't, Mike, if this is the one, the example you saw, the, the example I saw was just a simple like command where it, where it went and did a, uh, a get to, a, to a, an actual external IP address. So like you're getting a shell. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Or you can have the box basically go run some code mm -hmm. off, you know, offline or off, you know, off net. Right, so it basically it gives you a an open command line to run whatever you want wow. on the box. So it's it's totally possible that your box has been exploited and you won't know for seven right. days. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's, that's a scary thought, right? The sky is the limit when it comes to a bad actor that wants to take care, take advantage of this vulnerability. 
they can come up with anything they want to. They want to use the boxes for cryptocurrency, they can. They can if they want to set them up to do DDoS attacks, they can. I think, Mike, you said that there is a, there is a patch for it, right? Yeah, so they patched every vulnerable version, so they're backporting it, available. Um, so they're, they're recommending that, that everybody obviously go out and, and install that patch. Um, I also saw Microsoft issued a couple other um, advisories themselves specifically for Azure because they, they're seeing this activity uh, and they're recommending, obviously, they have an Azure-based workload running the affected version that you should go out and make sure you, uh, you patch those. All right. Yeah, wow. it's it, it, like I said, it was an interesting one. I, 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 that's the one of the pieces that I saw. I was like, wow, that's that's a new one. That's you know gives you a little bit of time. Now I don't know what you can do from a so if you're a server admin, mm. what can what do you, what can you do? I'm assuming there's a way for you to do a lookup. I didn't look at the actual like what you actually have to how you have to craft the the recipient address, mm -hmm. um, but I'm assuming there's some way for you to do some sort of search through your mail server to figure out whether you've got one of these things sitting in state. Right, waiting somewhere to, in the queue, right. it's still trying to validate the recipient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, there's gotta be some way. If there, if there isn't today, I'm sure somebody's gonna develop a way to, to run that search across your mail server to figure this out. Hmm. To figure out if you do need to go ahead and do a reboot and yes, <laughs> or that, that purge. also means because like you know we, we just talked about how you don't want to reboot your mail servers you and on the another bug we just talked about where it's like no one really wants to have to shut everything down to patch yeah. because they have to have their uh, maintain their uptime yep. maybe there's a temporary fix or at least some sort of response you can do in the meantime until you can schedule that that maintenance window yep. yeah. With the amount of, of email that's being sent to a, you know, out into the internet any given day, I mean, nothing prevents people from trying over and over again until it happens. So either you catch all of it successfully, uh, or you don't. But really, the, the best thing to do at this point is, is still to patch. So Manny, there's a new malicious Android app that has a novel way of stealing two-factor credentials. Yeah, so try, try to, to kind of set the story. Uh, Google earlier this year, sometime I think in January, had sort of put out a, a bulletin to their developers um, to basically tell them to, um, they were banning apps that had access to SMS and call logs without justification. Okay. So makes sense. Um, which yeah, obviously completely makes sense. You don't want somebody you know taking over that. So mm -hmm. what this guy uh, Lucas uh, Stefanko of ESET, um, he had reported that he had seen a couple of apps in the Google Play Store um, that had been released between June 7th and June 13th that looked to steal the one-time passcode that was being sent to devices for applications uh, impersonating the Turkish um, cryptocurrency exchange, the BTC Turk. Okay, yeah, um, for this. So, so in essence, what's happening here is, so the, the, the bad guys have basically found a way to uh, impersonate the or or recreate the notifications that uh, Android phones or mobile devices or anything running Android really the the whole notification system they're able to intercept that the malicious app was intercepting the second factor SMS and making it so that the user didn't see it um, but the attacker did and then they could use that to get into the the cryptocurrency account 
and drain all the money out of it. So they're literally intercepting it. So the end user ha has no idea that it's actually just happened. All they've gotten is just an error message that says, I'm sorry, we can't process your request right now. Go ahead and try again later. So the, the interception of that second factor stuff, you mentioned that Google was tightening up security. Is it as a result of finding this particular malware? It is not in result. I think this is actually in result because they had actually seen previous to this. So I saw this, there was a couple links in this article to a couple of other situations where Google had seen this being uh, abused. Okay. So there were some other instances where um, another group was was fooling individuals. What they were doing was they were um, creating fake notifications where they, would, they can actually change the icon that shows up. So they could do things like put a notification in there that you had missed a call from somebody that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. right? And they can create the notification that looks exactly like you missed a call. There was a couple other instances where they could fool and put some fake notifications in there. And I think that was what sort of started all this down the road of them trying to tighten up the security for this. This is just another form of it that obviously is a little more serious mm -hmm. when you start talking about uh, breaking into people's crypto, crypto wallets. Sure. So this whole notion of of Google trying to tighten down the use of their uh, notifications on their Android devices clearly is a move in the right direction, except that it also, I think, sheds a light on potential problems in that space. You know, it's going to be hard again, you know, because it's, it, it's now re requiring Google because it's this whole justification process. So yep. they're telling you, unless you're justified, which means that the developers have to go and sort of present their case when they're, when they're presenting their app to say, hey, I've got a new app and here's what it does. Oh, and I'd like mm -hmm. the permission to go into SMS you know, and notification logs. Well, that's interesting, because I remember back in the day, in earlier versions, it would show you a whole big list of permissions. I don't think it shows you that as much anymore, or maybe the apps developers have done a better job of like not requiring stupid permissions. But I remember with older apps, I'd look at the list and go, why does this need access to my address yeah. book? Why yep. does it need access to like the camera? What's this for? Yep. But it sounds like, and, and the, <laughs> it sounds like Google, instead of relying on users to make that decision, at least in the case of SMS, is making that decision for them. Yeah. And as much as I like having control over what goes on my phone or what doesn't, I think in the case of most users who might just scroll through it, this may actually be a positive thing. I, would they like to do that for all the permissions? Because, hey, maybe that's OK. Yeah. Most apps don't need that permission. And if you've got enough of a problem with cryptocurrency and SMS-based two-factor, uh, maybe that's a decision you can make in advance instead of offloading it to all of your users. Mike, what do you want to say about it? Yeah, so one thing, kind of reading through it, I, I made the assumption that since they're intercepting every every text message in the user or every notification, and the user would never get one, that once they get that initial one-time password, they're going in and, I guess, emptying that wallet because assuming the user is going to realize they're never getting right these credentials back um, to log in. But I guess just another case of, you know, you know, you should be, instead of using SMS, maybe for a different reason here, you should consider using, you know, a, a traditional authentication app. Yeah, and I think that's a I think that's a good point. I mean, there are, there are so many other ways that you can do, you know, sort of second factor, um, and you know, I think these things are these apps are are the front ends for your crypto wallet, which mm -hmm. most people don't you really don't want to play around with that. No. No, <laughs> you take that that security as seriously as you can. Yeah, absolutely.
So if you can use an authenticator application that runs you know, on your phone, doesn't need an internet connection or any sort of um, communications that can be intercepted or, or blocked, then you're, you're much better off than if you're relying on um, SMS or some other sort of out-of-bounds communication uh, to get the message to you. Let's take a look at the internet weather for the past week. These are the top 10 most probed ports. Uh, first place is 445 TCP, that's SMB. We've been seeing that at least in the top two or three for the long, longest time. Uh, 23 TCP is in second place, uh, which is Telnet. 8089, I think we are attributing to uh, Splunk, but you know there's a lot of different web ports that poss could possibly be. 22 TCP is after that, that's SSH. 80 ICMP is ping, 3389 is remote desktop protocol. 81 TCP is another web port, 8545 is the Ethereum GF daemon. Uh, 8080 is another web port, and 5038 is actually the asterisk AMI. It's like the administration interface for an asterisk PBX, which is interesting. Uh, I want to show this view today, and mostly it's because we've been showing the top 10, but you know, if you don't think too hard about it, you might think they're all sort of like equally distant from each other. And I just wanted to show the distance between the top two ports that are in the list, which are 23 and 445. And you can see that the scanning on port 23 and 445 which usually hold the first and second slots, is miles ahead of the rest of the top 10. So 445 is actually the, um, is, is the dark green on the list, and 23 is the, the light green. And you see those are the top two. Um, you see they just changed places, right? So if you go back down and you look all the way to the right, you can see they are actually fairly close to each other at this mm -hmm. point in time, whereas in the past, 23 was significantly higher. This is a 60-day view. Uh, that dark blue, I believe is ICMP, and you see a, like maybe every every seven days or so a significant uptick in that. Uh, but I, th I just thought this was an interesting way of looking at it because typically we take one at a time, uh, but putting them in context is just kind of neat. So taking a look at the most sources probing. Now that is the um, that's the most individual sources and not the measure of volume. 445 and 23 are at the top. 8080 TCP is falling behind that, and then regular plain old 80 TCP. 5555 is Android Debug Bridge. We talked about 80ICMP being ping. 1433 is Microsoft SQL. 5431, I believe, is a UPnP port for Broadcom devices. Mm. Uh, we talked about 81, and then 53 is uh, DNS. Same kind of graph. Uh, you can see the top two up there that are jumping significantly in terms of the sources probing. That yellow is 445, and that wobbles significantly every single day. Um, and then 23 is fairly static. And I think the 445 is a bunch of Windows machines being turned on and off somewhere. And the 23 is probably Linux servers, which tend to stay on longer. So they don't have as much variation. That's a theory. Mm. Uh, and the rest you can see down towards the bottom is, you know, again, leaps and bounds away from where those top two ports are, uh, but still significant in their own right. I just want to give that view. So 445, you're pretty used to seeing this graph. Um, it hasn't really gone too far in the last couple of days, but since it's at the top of the list, I figured we'd take a look at it again. Uh, 5038 is that asterisk AMI. And you can see there's significant scanning there. There's not that many sources uh, overall, but the scan flows are pretty consistent. 
And Asterisk is a PBX, private branch exchange. Basically, it's a software phone system that you can use to make you know, either telephone calls within an office or out of that office. So people will try and scan for those to commit some amount of phone fraud. Uh, 3283 didn't make it into the top 10 or even the top 20, but it made it to one of our alerts uh, just because it, it changed so significantly off its baseline that we took a look at it. So 3283 I found is, is related to Apple Remote Desktop, which seems like a reasonable thing to be scanning for the same way you would scan for RDP on Windows boxes. If you can remotely get into a box like this, it would make sense to target it. We haven't actually seen any activity for this, at least in the last three months. And then a couple of days ago, we saw sort of a really huge spike up in that activity. So someone's looking at it. There's a bunch of different scattered sources. And looking at different points in time, I couldn't see any one country that really dominated. But there were maybe six or seven, a handful, that were from Argentina at one point in time. So I made a note of that. But the rest seemed to be fairly spread out. It was sort of a weird one to look at. Um, so we'll keep an eye on it. You know, it's, it's definitely interesting traffic now. Uh, 53 uh, UDP made it back into the top 10, so we came back to it. At some point, uh, at the start of the month, it was definitely in the top 10. Uh, you can see that massive spike around the 6th. Um, but then you can see a, a bump of maybe uh, 1,000 or so sources actually made it back into the top 10. So interesting how changes in the data that are, look relatively small when you graph them out can actually be big enough to, to bump them in and out of the top 10. And that's it. Thank you. You're welcome. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.